Good morning. Welcome to South Bend City Church. I'm Jason. Uh, we are honored that you are here, and we really mean that. Uh, one of the baselines for our community is the idea that every human life uh, bears a divine image, carries sacred worth, and so the fact that you're here uh, means the world to us because that's true of you. And we mean that regardless of what you believe or don't believe or what you think about the things we say or your story or your identity, all of that. Um, really has nothing to do with our conviction that your life is full of worth, and we're really honored that you're here. Uh, I'm going to tell you about a couple things going on for our community, but before I get there, uh, we just wanted to say a word about uh, the tragedy that happened in New Zealand. Um, if you have been living under a rock for the last two days, you may not know that um, a hate-filled man walked into a mosque in New Zealand and killed 50 Muslims, and did so because they were Muslim and uh, another 50 were injured, and I know that um, I've been carrying a really heavy heart the last couple of days, and maybe you have too. Uh, a couple of years ago, I found myself in this weird season where I was always the token Protestant on stage at Notre Dame events. <laughs> so they would do panels and stuff, and so I'd come in and be the Protestant pastor, and there'd be one of the rabbis from town and one of the priests from campus, and then there would always be Imam Muhammad from the local Islamic society, from the mosque that we have here in, in South Bend. And so after a couple of those encounters, I, I reached out to Imam Muhammad and I just said, I think we should be friends, right? Because um, I found him a really endearing man and also because it just seems like something Jesus would do and also because I think the world that we're living in right now would be better if more people in positions like mine were friends with more people in positions like his. So, uh, so Imam Muhammad is a friend of mine and I texted him Friday afternoon or Friday evening, I guess. Um, and I just said, uh, my dear friend, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry for the violence that was perpetrated against Muslims. I'm sorry um, for the fear that your community might be feeling right now. And I want you to know that um, I love you and our community, our church is, is with you. So I, I spoke on your behalf, whether you like it or not. And I said that uh, we love you and we are with you and we're praying for you. And if there's any way that we can stand with you, uh, whether it's today or in the future, just know that we would be here for that. And uh, he responded a little while later in a way that made me think that that was really meaningful to him. So before we go any further, I just wanted to make good on my promise to Imam Muhammad and his community. And I wanted to offer a prayer in light of what happened and a prayer for, for blessing and safety for our Muslim neighbors. And if you want to join me in that, uh, feel free to bow your head. Loving God, we pray uh, with heavy hearts with grief for the violence that happened in New Zealand. We pray because we know that you are grieved too. And because we are convinced um, that that kind of hate isn't just unfortunate, it's evil. And so we pray with grief and we pray against it. We pray for specifically Muslims around the world today who might feel unsafe or threatened I pray that we would create a world where that's not the case anymore. I pray here in South Bend uh, for the local Muslim community, for Imam Muhammad and the people he leads. They are our neighbors. Their kids go to the same schools as our kids. They work in our workplaces. Um, we're together here in South Bend. And I pray that here that they would feel loved, that they would know that we stand with them, that they would know that for us as a Jesus community, we're absolutely convinced that our calling is to stand side by side with them, uh, to stick up for them if we need to, and to keep learning from Jesus how to build a world of peace 
not violence. So we pray that um, your love would be known by people who are afraid today, and also that our love would be known, and that we would rise up and do the simple things, the important things that look like being good neighbors in a moment like this. I pray these things through Christ. We all said, amen. Uh, thanks for joining me in that. All morning I've been thinking to myself, I feel like Zach and the team have really given us a picture of where we're headed this season that we call Lent, really. Because the whole point is to go all the way through this season, to go deeply into it, and to find ourselves then at Holy Week and Good Friday and then at Resurrection, right? To go all the way through that and get all the way there. So now um, what I want to do is sort of like step back a moment from that and kind of think again with you this week about what we learned from Jesus, about like what that journey actually looks like all the way through death and resurrection, right? Uh, we're doing a series that we're calling Out of the Ashes, the beauty hiding in our most difficult experiences. And we'd like to actually name some of that and work through that together because I don't think resurrection comes by ignoring these things. Resurrection comes from facing these things, which is what we see in Jesus, right? So last week, we got it going with death. <clears throat> we talked about like the actual realization we are going to die. And like, like facing mortality as a, as a practice, as a spiritual discipline, uh, it's, it's a way of saying we can die small deaths right now, which is much of how following Jesus is described, right? To discover that those small deaths enlarge us, which I think little by little can create the kind of trust that we need to, to face our own mortality and to know that our own mortality isn't the end, right? So that's what we did last week, and it has been, it's been fun since that teaching, just to hear from some people in our community about the ways that that's showing up in their life, whether it's a number of people in our church who are really grieving loss. People have actually died in their life, and they're learning to maybe face that grief rather than ignore it. Others, it was discovering that some part of their life, like their work or their family, is a place to embrace the small deaths that are a part of life rather than to try to fight them, rather than trying to be immortal or invincible, uh, rather to embrace this pattern, Right? And this week, we want to look at another difficult experience of being human, right? Uh, so uh, I want to take you into uh, a moment at the end of Matthew's gospel to a peculiar experience that the disciples of Jesus have. And it's one of my favorite moments in the gospels, and I'll explain why. So this is Matthew 28. This is after Jesus has been resurrected, and he's going to meet his disciples on a mountain as a resurrected savior, right? This is like big stuff. And you would expect the disciples in this moment to have a profound experience of faith. Like that would be an expectation. But watch what actually happens in Matthew 28. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, when they saw the resurrected Jesus, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now I'm intrigued by this for a number of reasons. First of all, I will say, I think... If you're wondering if the gospel accounts of Jesus are really just crafted on a myth or a lie, just to sort of come up with a story, they don't read that way to me. Because if you're trying to create propaganda for something that never happened, I don't know why you would include that detail. It doesn't really help you in that instance. But if you're trying to tell the truth, well, then things like this might show up in its midst, right? So that's interesting to me. But I also just appreciate... The, the humanity, the, the reality that sometimes the moments when we would hope to have the greatest experience of faith or belief, like it doesn't always go that way, right? And sometimes you find yourself actually asking more questions than you started with. So for example, in my life, uh, one of the more challenging examples of this was when I was in college. Uh, I went to college as a music ed major because music was like the only thing that had ever really worked for me. 
And when you're going to college, like you want to succeed, right? And you want to make, be able to make a living. You want to have a job. So there's like some career security involved in finding something that you can do. There's identity wrapped up, right? Because like some people are athletes and some people are the nerds and some people are the business people. And I was a musician and that was identity for me too. So I go to college as a music uh, ed major and uh, during that freshman year, though, this, this shift starts happening in my heart, which is I actually feel myself called back to a sense of calling that I had had in high school. And that sense of calling that I had in high school was actually to do what I'm doing with you today, which is more to serve the church in a role like this. So it's, I'm there, and it's my freshman year, and I'm really wrestling with this. Do I stick with the music ed thing? By the way, my scholarship dollars were all tied to my music major, and I couldn't afford private college without that. Uh, I start talking to some mentors and some friends about how I'm thinking about switching majors to something like Christian ministries or biblical studies, something that would kind of line me up with that sense of calling, right? And most of my mentors, teachers, professors told me, don't do it, man. Like a couple of my music profs actually called me into their office. And it's like they were saying, look, Jay, you don't have a lot going for you, but the music thing is working. So like, why would you want to mess with that, right? Really? So these are people I trust and they were telling me, don't do it. But this thing inside, it felt like, no, I have to do this. So I wrestled with it for a little bit, and then I go to the registrar's office for a radical act of faith to change my major. And I'm kind of joking, but in the moment, it felt radical. It felt consequential, right? So I go in, I fill out the paperwork, and I change my major. Later that night, I go to bed in my freshman dorm, and I wake up the next morning staring at the stained drop tile ceiling of the freshman dorm at Bethel. I don't know why it's stained, but it's a freshman boy's dorm, so don't ask questions, right? I'm staring at this ugly thing a few inches from my nose, having just changed my major, having aligned my life on a career path that's kind of built on faith, right? And I'm not making this up. The first thought that enters my head when I wake up that next morning is, I don't know if I believe in God, right? I know, like, it's okay to laugh now, don't worry. At the time, it wasn't funny at all. Like, it plunged me into a crisis of faith and belief. And the irony of it for me was that I had just, like, acted on faith. Like, it was a big faith move for me, a big belief move for me to change my major. I would have hoped that I would have had an experience of faith to match the moment. And in reality, I woke up plagued by doubts that I had never thought of before. Well, um... That's one of the reasons that I identify with this moment in the scripture, and the experience that unfolded in my life is more of what I'm going to talk about what I'm going to talk about today. But I want to observe what happens next in Matthew 28. This is interesting. So the resurrected Christ shows up to his friends, and some of them are standing there looking at him, and they doubt him. And by the way, if I'm Jesus, I'm probably thinking like, you know what? I'm doing my best here, man. Like, you need to meet me halfway on this. And so after realizing that some of them doubt him, Jesus says to the ones who doubt him, look, I love you, you matter to me, get it figured out, and then come talk to me. Those of you who believe, I'm going to send you out into the world, and you're going to change the world because you were so certain of this resurrection. That's not what happens, actually. Let me show you what happens. This is right after, this is the next verse in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them. Jesus came to the believers and the doubters. Jesus came to the ones who had no problem embracing this new story, and he came to the ones who still couldn't get there, and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you. You the believers and you the doubters. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus looks at the believers and the doubters. The ones who say, yes, resurrection, I see it, I believe it, I know what this means. And the ones who stand from a distance and say, I don't know. 
I'm not sure this adds up. I'm not sure this makes sense. He looks at all of them, and he says to all of them, I'm sending you out. He says to all of them, you're a part of this. He says to all of them, I'm with you, whether you believe it or not. Like, I'm with you to the very end of the age. Now, I've thought about Jesus' experience there, and I wonder, like, how it is that he's so inclusive of his friends who doubt. And then I've thought about his own experience just a page earlier, and I wonder if the two are connected. Like, ask yourself, how is it that Jesus is so inclusive, so welcoming of his friends who doubt, even when he's standing right in front of them? How does that work for him? Well, I think he developed some empathy because of what had happened to him just one page earlier. So if you're like looking at a paper Bible, you can literally just turn the page back one page, and you'll read the story of Jesus' crucifixion, of his actual suffering death. And there's a moment in his suffering that I think lays the groundwork for what happened in chapter 28. So let let me take you back to the story of Jesus' death. Um, Also because this, again, sets a trajectory for us this Lenten season, right? But I want to just sort of work through this and observe something that happens when Jesus is on the cross. This is in Matthew 27. This is right after uh, sort of a mock trial where they sentenced Jesus to death. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they'd crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. At about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice. This is uh, the Aramaic that he would have actually spoken with his native tongue. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, and here's the translation in the text, my God, my God, I trust you and I know that I know that I know that even in my suffering you are working for my good. Anybody know what I just did there? That's not what Jesus said. I swapped out the translation on you. Here's how I want to observe that. I think the way that a lot of us think of faith, I think the way that a lot of us think of what it means to be the most faith-filled, those are the words that we would put in Jesus' lips when he's suffering, but it's not what he says. Let me remind you what he says. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in his suffering on the cross, cries out of a deep and painful unknowing. He's there on the cross and he cries out, God, why are you letting this happen? What's the causal relationship here? How does this work? How are you who I believe you to be when this is happening to me? Jesus cries out of a deep and painful unknowing. Now maybe that's gonna mess with your Christology a little bit to talk about Jesus experiencing unknowing. I'm not gonna resolve that for you. I just want to observe in the text, Jesus there cries out a deep and painful unknowing, 
Which perhaps is why he can look at his friends just one page later who are doubting, who they're not sure how it fits together. It might explain how he can include them in the next page of the story because he himself has known on the cross that that suffering didn't just bring pain to his body, but it brought a deep and painful sense of, I don't know how this makes any sense, God. I don't know why you were letting this happening. Jesus found himself crying out, I don't know. This week in our Lenten journey, the difficult experience that I want to turn to is the painful moment of unknowing that you and I will stumble into from time to time. Now, if you're at a trivia contest at a bar and you don't know the answer to the question, that might harm your pride, but it really won't hurt that much, right? But there are forms of unknowing that are profoundly painful and difficult. If you have grappled with suffering in the world and it has brought you to a place of unknowing about how that suffering fits in with the character of God that we would hope to believe in, you know that that can be a painful sense of unknowing. If you've ever had one of those days where you woke up and you stared at the ceiling and you're like, I don't know if I believe in God. (laughs) I'm not sure how the Bible fits into this or Jesus fits into this. Then you know that that can be painful and disorienting. If you've ever um, maybe had a season where you thought you knew who you are and where you were going, and then you woke up one day and you feel like you don't know who you are or where you're going, You know, that's not theoretical. That's a painful sense of doubt or unknowing. In this Lenten season, I want to ask if it's possible that there's actually something beautiful hidden in those experiences if we face them rather than running from them. So today, I actually want to make a case for a little bit of doubt. I think some of us um, might have some questions that we're ignoring because we're afraid what's going to happen if we pay attention to them. I think some of us have been told by people like me in positions like this that if you have any doubts, you have a problem. And I don't actually think that's true. I think some of us have had um, questions that we were wrestling with that we were afraid to mention because they might disrupt other people or the communities that we're a part of. I relate to all of that. I mean, the next thought that I had when I laid in that bed that morning in college was, well, I don't know how to do the work that I feel called to if I have some uncertainty here. Because the people that I had seen do the work that I was thinking I was supposed to do, They seem to stand on stages like this and have just airtight certainty about everything. And it seemed that the certainty they seemed to have propelled them into their work, empowered them in a really helpful way. And I thought, how can I do that work if I don't have the kind of certainty that those people on stages seem to have? So there was a vocational insecurity. There was a social insecurity for me because I was going to a Christian college. So I didn't know what would happen if I walked out of my dorm room and told a friend or a professor, I don't know if I believe in God. I don't, I don't know where I'm at on this whole thing that made sense to me yesterday, and for some reason it's fallen apart from me today. So there was a social insecurity for me, and there was a deep identity collision. Like, I grew up in church. I grew up calling myself a Christian. I grew up believing in God. I grew up praying. I grew up reading my Bible. I grew up going to church camp every summer. Like, identity was wrapped up for that in me too, and so these questions were terrifying for a season. But I also slowly came to trust some of those questions And to actually believe that they're part of a fully lived life. And that when we avoid them or when we tell each other you can't ask those questions, we're actually robbing each other of something beautiful. So I want to make my case a little further. And I want to take you to another moment where a disciple is doubting the resurrection of Jesus. Which, if there's anything in the scriptures that seems to be like central to what we call Christian belief, it would be resurrection. It seems to be the thing that propels the whole movement. But one of his disciples has a problem with this. This is who we call Doubting Thomas. Any fans? Yeah? Let me take it to John chapter 20. This is in John's gospel. This is also a place 
where Jesus has been resurrected in the story. And now Thomas has to decide if he's going to believe this whole thing. John 20. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. This is when the resurrected Jesus appeared to them. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. You saw him crucified and buried, but we have seen him alive again, right? But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now I've got to be honest, I like Thomas. I'm a little bit like Thomas. Um, I'm kind of wired to step back and analyze. It, for me, often it's easier to step back and analyze than it is to enter into experience. It's like I kind of relate to that. Sometimes that's a problem. Anybody know Oscar from The Office? Anybody know the episode where they call him actually? Because he likes, you know, if, if you're like spouting something that's half true, he's going to Google it and Wikipedia is going to correct you, right? And he's going to be actually, right? That's a little bit me, I got to be honest. Um, I, I really care about getting things right. So when my friend is like, I read something on the internet, I'm like, can we talk for a minute? Like, can we track that down? Are we sure that's quite right? If, if there's a philosophy or a theory or a conspiracy idea that's not adding up, I want to poke holes in it. That's sort of my natural disposition toward the world and honestly toward faith. So when Thomas says, unless I see it for myself, I'm not going to believe it. I like Thomas. That makes sense to me, to be honest. And I think Thomas sometimes gets a bad rap. Thomas can be held up as like, don't be like Thomas, right? But I actually think that misreads what happens next. And I think what happens next not only um, affirms Thomas and says it's good that Thomas is Thomas, I also think it shows us a little bit of the beauty hidden in some of our unknowing, like the, what Thomas experiences. So look at what happens next. A week later, Jesus' disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, first of all, I want to observe that though through most of the gospel stories, it's like Thomas is at the back of the pack of faith and everybody else is running faster and getting to the finish line more quickly than him, like toward faith, toward belief, toward the right idea of Jesus. It seems that Thomas is always kind of a little bit back in the ideas, right? But in this moment, when we read Thomas saying, my Lord and my God, when he looks at Jesus, uh, he's the first person in the Gospels to say that about Jesus. Somehow doubting Thomas gets propelled to the front of the pack. He actually gets there more quickly than any of his friends who are in the front of the class, like kissing up to the teacher. Like he actually gets there more quickly when he says, my Lord and my God. I think there's something to be said about that, right? That, I think that's actually the gospel's way of affirming him. But watch, pay a little more attention here to, to what actually just happened. And I think it takes us deeper into why the doubting and unknowing isn't always a bad thing. Now, 2,000 years later, in the year 2019, with a little bit of Christian history and theology behind us, when we see Thomas saying to Jesus, my Lord and my God, that sounds like the right answer, right? Like, if you're a Christian, that sounds like the right answer. You're supposed to look at the resurrected Jesus and say, my Lord and my God, right? But for a first century Jew to look at another man and say, my Lord and my God, that doesn't sound like the right answer to a first century Jew. It sounds like blasphemy to a first century Jew. It sounds like a category error to a first century Jew. It sounds like heresy to a first century Jew. But somehow Thomas is able to get to a whole new encounter with God that was there for all of them, but they were having a hard time working it out, Right? One of the things that doubt and unknowing can do is take us into deeper learning. I think what a lot of us call learning is actually pretty shallow. And what it is, 
is we already have the categories defined in our head. The buckets are already established, and we're just trying to fill them up with more information. That's not deep learning. That's shallow learning. Deep learning is when you surrender your categories and let your brain get remade. I think that's deeper learning. Let me offer a cheesy little example. Let's say your entire life you have been taught that there's two kinds of food in the world, vegetables and beef. By the way, I'd be okay living in that world. That'd be fine with me. Let's say your entire life you said food exists in two categories, vegetables and beef. And you've never seen anything to contradict that. And then one day, somebody hands you this. What do we got here? Apple, right? So they hand you an apple. Well, your whole life you've been taught there's two kinds of food. There's vegetables and beef. And they're telling you to eat this thing. So you've got to figure out, is this a vegetable or is it beef? Unless you go through a little bit of unknowing, where you surrender your categories and let them get remade, right? Now, this is like a cheesy, simple little example But I think so much of what we call learning is like trying to fit an apple into vegetable or beef, not realizing that we're being confronted with reality at a deeper level. And when you confront reality at a deeper level, you might have to go through some unknowing to to get to the reality that's right in front of you, right? And I actually think that Thomas's whole like demeanor, his whole personality became a gift to him in that moment because he'd been standing back and watching everything. He'd been thinking deeply about what was happening And then when he encountered the resurrected Christ for himself, when he got his hands on that reality, he was able to apprehend it fully before anybody else. That to me sounds like beauty hidden in the difficulty of saying, I don't know. Now, by the way, uh, a writer named uh, Pete Enns has written a book called The Sin of Certainty that some of you might find really helpful. Enns says it like this. He says, we keep the creator captive to what we are able to comprehend. And that sounds both true and wrong to me. It's true because I think we do it. I think we have our categories and we expect our experience of God to fit our categories. But it's wrong because surely in the relationship between us and creator, it's our categories that ought to be captive to the creator rather than the other way around, right? But that's going to take some deep learning and probably some unknowing along the way as we try to get our hands on the mystery. I think um, unknowing has a real gift hidden in it that it can take us into deep learning when we encounter the divine. And I also think that Thomas gets to experience something really important in this moment that that our hearts are longing for, and it's what I would call awe, wonder. I think he he gets to have an experience of that that the, the guys around him are still sort of waiting for, right? I mean, think about this. Like for three years, they've been walking around with Jesus. They've been like literally bumping into Jesus on the road, I can imagine, right? And it's Thomas who first realizes that the whole time they were bumping into Jesus, he was bumping into God. And I don't know a better definition for wonder or awe than the realization that you have bumped into the divine in your everyday life. The realization that you have bumped into God waiting for you in the world that he has made for us to encounter him in. I don't know a better definition of wonder or awe. And it seems that Thomas has access to that experience I don't think it's in spite of the questions he was asking. I think it might have been because of them. Because there's something good waiting for us in the unknowing. And so I want to make the case this week, this part of the Lenten experience that we're sharing together, I want to make the case that there might be some unknowing in your life that you've been avoiding and that maybe it would be good to turn to it. There might be some questions that you're afraid of. They're, They're with you, though, but you're afraid of them. And you've been looking for ways to distract yourself from them. Or you've been looking for somebody like me to talk you out of them rather than to take you further into those questions. By the way, I've learned the hard way that some people think my job 
is to, is to perform certainty on your behalf. And the way I've found out that people think that's my job is sometimes when I've said, I've had some questions here or there, or I'm not sure about this or that, sometimes after I do that on a stage like this, somebody will come up to me, and they don't just want to disagree, which I'm all for, and they don't just have questions, which I'm all for, they're really angry with me. <laughs> and it's the energy of that anger that tells me, oh, this isn't about me, this is about something going on with you, and you hope that I would rescue you from it rather than take you further into it. But I don't think there's any real life waiting for you in that, right? So, um, so that's the proposal this week, that maybe the difficulty of unknowing, of saying, I don't know about some of the things that seem to matter most. Maybe there's a beauty hiding there, and maybe this Lenten season we could face that. Um, now, by the way, I'm not trying to fetishize doubt. I'm not trying to preach a gospel of nihilism. I think there are some things that we can meaningfully believe. Uh, but I, I just don't think we can short-circuit our way to that experience. I think we have to go all the way through the path that gets us there, right? In my own life, I've discovered that um, some of the things that have most equipped me for this work have been painful experiences of unknowing. Some of the things that I lean on as a pastor, frankly, have been the deep experiences of unknowing because I think they've taken me into deeper learning and a different kind of faith. In fact, by the way, around here we have a, a secret mantra. I've shared this once or twice before. So we have the four mantras on the wall, sushi, not fish stew, and everyone an icon, and practices, not performances, and fields, not factories. And we have that beautiful identity statement that you walk by when you come in today. It says a community of grace and peace for our city and the world, right? Well, we have a secret one. It's kind of like the secret menu at In-N-Out Burger, you know, <laughs> right? Obviously, Five Guys is better, but... Uh, um, anyway, so we have a secret sort of mantra around here, and it's this. South Bend City Church, a great place to lose your faith. <laughs> now, hang with me for a moment, okay? I'm, I'm not necessarily rooting for you to lose faith. Hang with me, okay? Uh, except I am. There, there's two ways that we mean this. First of all, we believe there are modes of faith that need to be left behind. There are versions of faith that need to be lost, Right? So for example, if we have a faith that is reinforcing our prejudices rather than teaching us to see everyone as a bearer of the image of God, we should leave that faith behind, right? If we have a faith that is terrified of any new data or evidence about anything, we should leave that faith behind. If we have a faith that thinks that every scientist in the world is conspiring against us, I think we should leave that faith behind. If we have a faith that elevates men and diminishes women, I think we should leave that faith behind. If we have a faith that excludes some people from Jesus's table so that we can privilege other people at Jesus's table, I think we should leave that faith behind. So there are actually a number of ways that I do want people to lose faith. If it's breaking the world rather than putting the world back together, we should lose it. Amen? All right, so, th so there's that meaning. But there's also this. There's another way this phrase works for us, which is for a lot of us, maybe not for all of us, but for a lot of us, if we have our eyes open and we are listening and learning, if we are walking through the world in the year 2019, we are probably going to get confronted with some data that doesn't fit our categories. We're going to see some evidence of things that don't fit the world the way we see it right now. We might even hear claims of faith or belief or non-faith or non-belief that are really challenging to us. And I actually think that for most of us, it will be normal to go through seasons of unknowing. And the only way to avoid it is to stick our head in the sand or to white knuckle like a, a fragile grip on certainty that doesn't actually hold up. So I'm saying, knowing that that will be a normal experience for many of us, let's be the kind of church that's great when you're going through that, right? Not the kind of church that says that your questions are a sign that you have a problem, 
Not the kind of church that thinks that you're less than because you're asking those questions or wrestling with those things, but rather the kind of church that celebrates the fact that we are on this journey together. And if Jesus cries out of a deep unknowing, then surely we don't have to be afraid of that. We could walk through it together too. Uh, This is really what we mean when we say Southland City Church, a great place to lose our faith. And I hope you experience that here. And this week, I want to challenge just a little bit that there might be some experiences of unknowing or doubt that you're wrestling with right now. And I think that this Lenten season, on our way to the death and resurrection of Jesus, the greater hope may not be in avoiding them, but running into them, facing them. So uh, I just want to offer a brief sort of opportunity for reflection. I'm going to put a few questions on the screen. And these questions will take us uh, up to the Eucharist experience that we'll share after that. Um, But also in this Lenten season, we want some time to reflect. Some quiet is really helpful during the Lenten season, I think. Maybe even to feel a little bit uncomfortable. So so what I'd like to do is uh, share these questions with you, and then we'll sit with them for a couple of minutes. Just see what they do on us. And then when that's done, I'll come back up and I'll take us uh, into this Eucharist experience that we'll do together, okay? But let me, uh, let me share these questions with you so that we can sit on them for a bit. Are there any doubts that you've been avoiding? Doubts about God or faith or identity or who you are or where you're going? Are there any fears in your life that are being cloaked in the veil of a false certainty? How is your doubt an invitation to gain deeper knowledge? And are there questions about the most important things that remain unanswered for you? If so, what beauty is hidden in that unknowing? Let's take just a couple of moments with these before I come back up and take us into Eucharist. There are a number of ways of thinking about Eucharist that I think are really faithful to the heart of Eucharist. It's certainly a place to say thank you to God for his love and for the gift of his son. Uh, It's also a place to trust the presence of God in our lives. It's also a, a place of solidarity. When you share a meal, it's often an experience that we're in this together, right? And I think today it might be appropriate to come to this table saying, Jesus, I want to be with you even in the unknowing, recognizing that he's with us in our unknowing because it marked his own experience on the cross. And so this could be a meal of solidarity to say we're in this together, right? And I think that's actually profoundly hopeful. Um, So I'm gonna 
break this bread and pray over these elements in a moment. And then when I'm done with that, you'll be free if you'd like to get up out of your seat and go to a table in one of the corners. Uh, when you get to the table today, the way that'll work is it's kind of self-serve. There's a basket with gluten-free, dairy-free, nut-free bread. And uh, you can use the tongs and take a piece of bread and hold on to it and remember the body of Christ broken for you. And then you can take the bread and dip it in the cup and remember the blood of Christ shed for you. And then you can take that and eat that. And find a place in your heart to say thank you or to recognize the presence of God or to say like solidarity, man. Even in the deep and difficult unknowing, right? Um, yeah, so let me remind you that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his friends. And he was about to take a loaf of bread and break it and say, this is my body broken for you. But I, I wonder if in that moment he also knew that his heart would be broken. Not just because he was abandoned and betrayed, but because he would enter that dark night that we call unknowing. But uh, with that around the corner, he took the loaf and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And then he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed. This is my life poured out. That's a fairly dark thing to say. <laughs> I think he knew that um, on the way to shedding his blood, he would enter something that you and I, in fact, enter on a fairly regular basis, which is a dark night of unknowing. And he said, this is the promise that God is so faithful that he's even with you when you don't know. Um, so I'll pray and then Anybody who wants to be at the table with Jesus, anyone is welcome at the table with Jesus and you'll be free to go to one of the tables, but let's pray. God, these are ideas that remind us that sometimes it's honestly kind of hard to be human. We wrestle with questions and ambiguities and some of us are plagued by doubts. And while some of us have perhaps been told that the doubts are a sign that something's wrong with us, I pray that you would chase that lie away and that we would see Jesus on the cross crying out of his own deep unknowing. That we'd find some solidarity there with him, him with us. I pray that we would trust today that this table is for the believers and the doubters and everyone who's a little bit of both. And I pray that perhaps in facing some of these deep and difficult questions that we would in fact find a beauty hidden within them and somehow that this meal would sustain us for that difficult work. I pray that these elements would be for us the life of Jesus given for us and for the world. And I pray these things through Christ. And we all said, amen. As you'd like, you're free to get up out of your seat and go to the tables in the corners. So a benediction for doubt. May you face the deep and difficult unknowing that is probably part of being human. May you discover that even in the moments when we say, I don't know, that God is present and working something beautiful. May you find the kind of faith that isn't afraid of the questions, but that grows out of them. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.